So last summer, we were camping in the Grand Canyon, all six of us, you and I, Sherry, and our four kids, and what was it? It was like the third night we'd been camping, so if you figure we slept for about three hours a night because we're not very good at sleeping in a tent, um, we'd had six hours of sleep in like 72 hours or something total, and we heard a sound. Do you remember that? <laughs> I don't think I will ever forget that sound. So what? It, so how would you describe the sound? Tent camping, not, not you know, an not an RV, not in a cabin, just an eighth of an inch of nylon between us and the outside world. It sounded like a baby pterodactyl being tore apart by a wolverine. <laughs> it was like a barky yelp with a bird squawky sound, like either that or and we have a kids book. That is called Broom on the Broom, or Broom Room on the Broom, and at the end they're trying to get away from this dragon, and they fall into this mud pit, and they all pile up and make this crazy looking monster. And I just like thought of that instantly when I heard the ah! the woof, woof. so it was nuts. Something is being dragged into or out of the woods and is dying, and uh, we're you and I are laying there. The kids don't wake up. Just me and Joey him. did, because oh. he's got great hearing. He woke up, because he and I were staring at each other from one side of the tent to the I other. They were all asleep. No. But, and the sound, this death, I mean, something's dying. I don't know what, I don't, I'm not sure it was a pterodactyl, although that is what it <laughs> sounded like. But something's dying, and the sound's getting closer and closer and closer. And we should preface this a little bit by saying, camping <laughs> is a new thing for us. I mean... <laughs> We've done a little bit of it very sporadically over the years, but the kids really wanted to go camping, so we decided to invest a little money in some camping gear and jump in with both feet. And so we're out there. I mean, we're at a campsite. It's not like we're right. And off the I just, path. I couldn't imagine that like nobody else, because you like looked outside early on, and nobody else was like looking outside. I mean, nobody was getting out of their tent. I was. We were about ready to get in the car. Yeah, it's a huge campground you know, probably hundreds, I think, of campsites, but we are on the edge, like our site backs into woods that goes for who knows how far, and the sound's getting closer, and it's getting closer, and so I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not an outdoorsman, I, I love nature, but it's not my, uh... But coming back to your bed is a really great thing. Sure, so, but I'm laying there, and I'm like, oh my god, I got my wife and my four kids and again an eighth of an inch of nylon between us and some thing and it's coming toward us and it's desperate. It is not going to be in the mood to talk when it gets here. So so I unzip and it's in the middle of July, middle of the summer in uh, Arizona in the Grand Canyon. So it's not cool either. So I'm you and I, we're in our sleeping bag, but I'm in my underwear, so I get out of the tent. Wait a second. You wear boxer shorts. I don't yeah. want anybody's image to be you okay. and whitey tighties. Tighty whities. You're tighty whities. Yeah. So I'm in my boxer shorts. I unzip the tent, 
And I go outside the tent, and I'm looking through this box, this plastic box that we've got outside the tent, because I know I've got a really dull hatchet <laughs> yeah. in the box. Yeah, clobber it to death. So, yeah. You know, That's a short-handled hatchet, This dude. hatchet is so sharp that it can leave a heck of a bruise. <laughs> so I dig around, and I don't want to turn the light on because I don't want to attract it to us. Everything's dark, so I think leave it dark so that it doesn't see light and start right running, start dragging whatever toward. limbs are still attached over toward us. <sighs> so I find the hatchet and I stand there, and I'm literally, without exaggeration, I'm standing outside the tent, you know, doing a little praying, hoping you guys are okay in the tent, and I'm crying. I'm standing in my boxers <laughs> holding a hatchet and crying, and. It was uh, it was terrifying, and so that was and that was only like eleven o'clock at night. So we'd only just recently gone to sleep, and that was it. No were, sleep for that night. Yeah, just, that wasn't even a you take turns and I'll be on the lookout kind of night. That was uh, nope, no. Everybody's up. No, eventually the screeching sound started getting further away instead of closer. So he had it, whatever it was, had moved in our vicinity, but then started to move away and. Went back in the tent, uh, slept with the hatchet for the rest of the night. Well, didn't sleep, laid there with the hatchet for the rest of the night and stared at the top of the tent until the sun came out. And so that was... At like 5 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that next day was a long day, no question. But the reason I bring that up and tell that story is because, you know, that was you and I (laughs) out there following our instincts, which... You know, I don't think they would have led to a great deal of success had we come under attack, but at least we had instincts and we did what we thought was right. And I've been thinking a lot lately about instincts and insecurities and the the way our instincts and insecurities evolve. And, and I, honestly, I've been thinking a lot about how that relates to alcoholism. And I, th- I think there's like a yin and a yang of instincts and insecurities. They kind of fight against each other. So I want to talk a little bit about your instincts uh, when I was in active alcoholism. This is a topic that, that you have to talk about a lot and that I've written about because uh, you, you, know, you get criticized. You feel shame yourself. You feel embarrassment yourself about the fact that you stayed with me. For so long through my active alcoholism there, you know, I, I drank heavily for the 25 years of our relationship prior to quitting. And, you know, the first, I guess, 15 or so it was, things were deteriorating, but it still seemed semi-normal. But the last 10 years I was clearly an alcoholic. And I say clearly because I kept trying to quit and then I would relapse and then I would try to quit and I would relapse. Now, I was a high-functioning alcoholic, so not a lot of people knew what was going on. Uh, our friends, I would say, almost entirely didn't know. It, our family, our close family, your mom, my parents, and our sisters, they knew what was going on, but that was pretty much it. And so it, it was it was fairly well hidden, but still, you kind of had a constant 10-year decision to make about whether or not you were going to stay or whether you were going to pack it up, take the kids, and leave my sorry drunken ass. And I want to, I want you to talk a little bit about that. What went into the decision-making process of staying or going? 
Well, the kids were the number one factor of staying because I didn't want them to grow up in a broken home because I felt like a broken home and you being an active alcoholic as a divorced father would be worse on them if we were together and you were drinking, but again, high functioning, not Mm -hmm. awful all the time. And I thought that was better for them. Um, And, you know, it'd be like a financial situation because we had just so much of our lives were entwined. We have no family out here where we live. Um, And kind of like made a commitment to, you know, stay together because I didn't want to get divorced. And I know that um, I just kept like hoping that things would turn around and that you would be the person I thought you were going to be. I just, you know... So you felt committed to the vows of marriage. Uh, we, we were kind of on an island by ourselves. And you were worried about the kids. And certainly some financial implications. Uh, and then also I guess I would... I, part of it was I would be worried about like what you would do. Yeah. Um, if we got divorced. I mean, I know like... There was conversations and I would throw it out in arguments and, you know, lots of nasty stuff was said between both of us. But I was really worried that that would have just been the end of you. Like you would have just drank yourself to death. I don't feel like you would have ever gotten sober. It would have been awful when you had the kids, you know. And I just remember getting picked up as a kid or when my dad came. For his weekend, sometimes my mom would be like, nope. She could tell by the way he parked in the driveway and walked down the sidewalk whether or not it was going to be okay for him to take us. Because there was always a good chance that he had had a couple beers before he came over to pick us up on that Friday night. Um, And it was really hard when he lived by himself. Now, his parents were much older. Um, He was a little bit of a menopause whoops baby. So he lived by himself for a while. Never heard that description. Yeah, well, you don't. I mean, like I your understand cycles it. and stuff don't match yeah. up, and you know don't it's necessarily it's the need 40s. an explanation. It's I just the never 40s. heard it before. There's no birth control when you're, you know, 42. Like people didn't talk about that. So, but that because that's how old my grandmother was when she had him. So, when my dad lived on his own after the divorce, and that was kind of the early part of my childhood where I don't remember. I remember very, very little, and my sister said, yeah, we never hardly went with Dad when he lived by himself, because my mom just didn't trust what he was going to do with drinking, and then it became a little bit better when he moved in with my grandparents, because they were elderly, so my mom knew that his his parents were really good, and he would, you know, be there most of the time, um, helping out his parents, and pretty sober, and till the evenings. Yeah. The top item on your list was the kids, not surprisingly. I think any any situation with a mama bear who's married to someone who's a drinker, that's going to be the top concern, if there are kids involved, certainly, that the welfare of the kids, not only like what would happen when the kids were with me, but as you said before, the, you didn't the want the kids and... to, you know, you wanted us to stay together because that is... 
the healthiest way to, to, you know, potentially healthiest way to raise kids. Obviously, if it's a terrible, terrible, right? If you were really situation. bad, I would have packed them. I mean, if it was like abusive and you were, you know, just a disgusting human being, most of the days of the week, yeah, they we would be gone. But so the, that decision, Indeed. the the way you kind of worked that through, and the way you explained it to us just now. Those are your instincts. You are following, you know, you're thinking it through. It's not like they're gut knee-jerk reactions, but they are still what I would consider the instincts based on how you were raised, what you know about mothering and fathering and relationships and society, and you just weigh all these factors. And then you're following your gut instinct because there's no, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's no like textbook answer for should you say or should you go. It's very situational. It's very dependent on uh, the the dynamics of the relationship, the belief system of the people involved. So if you had left, nobody would have been overly critical. They would have said, yeah, she was married to an alcoholic. Oh, we didn't realize that Matt was an alcoholic. But now that we know, sure, that's a legitimate reason to leave. Right. And... In staying, again, very legitimate to not want to break up the family. But still, still, even with all that said, I mean, you followed your instincts. You did what you felt was best. I'm certainly thankful for that. You had a lot of insecurity around that. You felt guilty for staying. Uh, Some of the advice that you got from, from relatives, from some of the people who did know what was going on, was just divorce him and get it over with. Not all the the advice, but some of it was was like that. And I know that you've shared that it made you feel is weak the right word? Yeah. Because because you stayed. Yeah. It, yeah. It, you know, weak. I think would be um, something that I felt like I was caving in. I was weak. I wasn't sticking up for myself. I wasn't sticking up for the kids. Because also, on the topic of instincts, you knew what I was doing was, was wrong. You instinctually knew that no matter how many times I said, all guys drink and guys drink to relax after work, no matter how many times I said that, you knew what I was doing was not healthy. Right, right. So your instincts are screaming at you. Mm-hmm. Both, hey, I mean, I just think this, I think this is a huge deal. And I think it's kind of under-talked about like a lot of things are with alcoholism. But... Here you are, you've got conflicting instincts. One of them is saying you need to stay because the kids need their father and that's the healthiest way to grow up. And then the other one is screaming at you saying, this is not okay. This is not healthy. This is no environment for any of us to be in. You mentioned twice now that you were worried about me. So including including me, this is not any kind of healthy environment to be in. Right. And... Those instincts are make in addition to some of the advice you got was making you feel guilty about about staying. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I've talked a lot about and written a lot about how in my active alcoholism, when I knew something was wrong, but I wasn't sure how wrong the something was. I spent a lot of time debating in my head. Am I an alcoholic or am I not? I don't. Well, I don't sleep in the gutter and I don't pee myself. And I don't spend our, every last nickel on vodka. 
So maybe I'm not an alcoholic. And then I would think, oh yeah, but boy, last weekend did not go well. So maybe I am. And I would just spend all of my, you know, hours where work was not directly occupying my brain, I spent arguing with myself about whether or not I was an alcoholic. Right. There what was, was even... that like for you? How much time did you spend going, God, I should leave this jackass or no, I got to stay for the kids or this makes me look weak. No, really, it makes me look strong. Like, was that a mental gymnastics kind of a thing for you? Um, I think it only became a mental gymnastics when there were incidences where we fought and argued and you behaved poorly. Like, uh, if things had been going smoothly and it was day to day and, you know, like, you know, some, I mean, it wasn't like every weekend you were just an asshole and right. drunk. So if things have been going good, you know, yeah, all couples have issues, but, and I knew that there was a little bit more tension in our relationship, um, but I didn't, th- didn't, it didn't overwhelm me. It was only like when we would have a really big blow up and then I would think, why, why am I staying like with this guy who's just not listening, not not listening to him, his own body even. I mean, I feel like you had to have had some sort of idea that this wasn't, drinking wasn't right. Um, but, you know, I can't be in your head. So I uh, would say it wasn't well, every time. Well, I mean, And I didn't, probably because I tried to go on and I tried to make our lives as normal as possible too for the kids. Like I didn't, like if I were to focus and dwell on that, and I can go be very surface level, so I could just stay floating on the surface, keeping our heads above water, and go on with the day like nothing is going on. If even if you were like already passed out by like two thirty in our bed, you know, in the afternoon. So that's the, you know, the kind of textbook definition of you just push stuff down. Yeah. When you say you can be very surface level, the reason you can be very surface level is because you've just shoved the, the true emotions. Away and say, yeah, because I think you have to develop that sort of skill set. It's part of the defense mechanism. Yeah, and you know, just with my childhood and some things that had happened throughout my young adult life, I got really good at that. So that wasn't hard for me to do. So and I didn't think about it. Yeah, the only time I like said unless there was a really bad blow up and. But so when when there was a really bad blow up, I mean, I can remember what that would be like for me the next day. I would often, not always, I mean, sometimes I really, even the next day, thought you were the cause of the problems. Mm-hmm. But often, I was apologizing by the next day and realized that I had overdrank and I would made mistakes. And in my head, I never even considered for a second that you would leave. I mean, that was the one time, you, you kind of did do an ultimatum once. Um, but... You know, that was out of the 10 years, that was just a kind of a flash in the pan. It, it didn't it w- didn't have a huge impact on our relationship. But the, the, the times when I would overdo it, things would get bad, we'd argue all night. The next day, when you were going through the mental gymnastics and actually arguing with yourself about whether or not you should stay, all I was thinking was just, Matt, just keep apologizing and you're going to have to give her some time. She'll get over it. It never occurred to me that you might leave. So it's just, it's interesting to me that, you know, that your instincts were, were such that, um, 
that that argument would come out only when things were bad, and otherwise you could kind of you could kind of I mean, sh- shove them down. Your more your your insecurities, I should say. Yeah. So there were definitely some things that I know you probably, you know, like I had some backup plans. You know, I always kind of had some stuff going on that it'd be like, and I remember like there was a time that it was just really bad. And I like had bags packed with like two sets of clothes for the kids waiting in the storage unit just in case I needed to throw them in the car and go. And I remember I was like so upset because in Colorado you have to get emissions testing and you know just some like the my car was in my name but then for some reason we just like put it in your name just so then we didn't have to deal with emissions testing or maybe it was license plates I don't remember it was something crazy and I remember like being like really upset that my car that could hold all the kids like wasn't in my name so what if I had to leave and take the kids and the car wouldn't be in my name I'd be stealing your car hmm. like I got really panicked about that because hmm. I mean there was times where like you had tried to quit drinking and it was for shorter times but you know and then there was a period and I don't even exactly know when it was but where like every time you drank it just was treating you the wrong way. Like, we weren't necessarily always constantly arguing, but the depression and the, uh, the misery that you were in. Yeah. That's that's interesting. I never knew that about the car. I mean, the reason the, I mean, I remember why it happened when we were buying that car. We had some number of kids. I don't remember how many, but um, we were all at the dealership and it was taking hours and so you and the kids went home and I just stayed to finish the paperwork. You weren't there to yeah. sign the paperwork so it was in my name for no other reason than I wasn't trying to trap you. I never well, had I some know. kind of conscious thing like ah, if the car's in my name she can't leave. Like right. I, I didn't think that that through. I just was there and you weren't so that's why right. it was in my so, name. So yeah so I was just like I think about that and I just think about you know like you know it's kind of like you just put together like some safety net stuff like I always had I mean I've heard lots about having a to-go bag a go bag yeah but I didn't know you ever did that I mean yeah there was I don't know it was about a three or four month period where it was really really bad and I think that's when I first had your parents kind of involved in asking for help yeah um and it was just a like a three or four month reoccurrence where it was just all the time and you were just a really angry person at that point. So there's this constant battle between your instincts and your insecurities. The insecurities are making you feel ashamed and embarrassed. And you're saying, on occasion anyway, you're saying, what the hell am I doing? Why am I staying? And at the same time, your instincts are, no, it's in the kid's best interest to stay. What, what will happen to Matt if I leave? Um which is really a generous thought to have, honestly. I can't, like, I I can't say that if the roles were reversed that that would have been high on my list of concerns, but you're just a much more compassionate person than I am. So you've got this kind of yin and yang between instincts and insecurities that I think is, 
is totally, totally common. You know, a story that you and I heard, I guess it, we first started to be involved and hear about this a couple of weeks ago from a woman who, um, she actually was sharing with us that her instincts were telling her one thing, but she just didn't have the strength to trust her instincts. And she shared with her what her instinct, shared with us what her instincts were. And they were all logical and reasonable. And I think you and I shared back with her that very sentiment that, yeah, everything you're thinking about, if that's what you feel like you need to do, we didn't necessarily push her in one direction or another, but we said, yeah, if that's what you feel like you need to do, then the thing that you're suggesting it's not out of hand. It's not. It's not ridiculous. It's, you're not overblowing it. You're not being crazy, which is what she was looking for. She was worried <laughs> that uh, the direction she was leaning was was leaning too far. And so what she ended up doing, obviously, we, we don't want to reveal her name, but what she ended up doing was she left her husband to stay with her sister for a while. Her husband was drinking and the drinking was getting out of control and things weren't going the way she wanted. So she left to stay with her sister for a while. And I think during the, maybe that first week she was gone, he, you know, it started out kind of insulting her and maybe passive aggressive and a lot of anger, which is what you would expect. Yeah. That's what you'd expect the alcoholic's initial reaction to be. But then and then I think slowly, somewhere in the middle of the week, maybe there was a suggestion that she come home and they would talk, and um, you know, maybe moving a little more in the in the direction of a civil tone to the to the way the suggestion was being made. But it still wasn't. It still, you know, there was still she still felt her instincts. She shared with us was that she was going to be kind of taking the bait if she went back. Mm-hmm. Her instincts were still to stay with her sister. That that. She didn't. She wasn't yet able to trust the sentiment he was. He was conveying, and then you know, by the end of the week, he had said, "Listen, why don't you come over at the end of the weekend and we'll talk?" He said, "You know, I don't remember if he said he was sorry." You know, through the texting and the calling that they were doing before they had seen each other, but but she definitely got the sense that he was getting more serious about understanding the how serious she was and the, the gravity of the mm-hmm. situation. And I think the last thing she shared with us was that she was feeling like her, again, her instinct was to go and, uh, and to talk with him. And so she did. And, you know, this is only a couple of weeks ago. So this is far from a long-term success, but he quit drinking. He told her he had kind of an aha moment and realized what he was doing was wrong. He had periods of long-term sobriety in the past, and he wanted to get back to that. And I think there was definitely a spiritual component to his awakening, which made her feel good. She's a very spiritual person. And she moved back into the house. You know, he knows that the sister is still right there, and she can go anytime she needs to. But that she is committed to working on the relationship, and it it's going the right direction anyway for the time being. Mm -hmm. And what really struck me about this situation is all you and I did through, you know, phone calls and and texts and emails was just kind of nod our head and say, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What you're suggesting makes sense. But it gave her a tremendous amount of confidence 
and backing for her instincts. Mm-hmm. And that's so important because, you know, in, back to our situation, in the times when you were beating yourself up for being weak because you weren't leaving, some of the family advice was, yeah, you need to leave him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess the point I'm trying to get to is we're always going to question our instincts. That's just human nature. That has nothing to do with alcoholism. That's human nature. But when we can confide in and talk to people who are going through something similar or have recently gone through something similar, then their shared, I don't know, I don't know if wisdom is the right word, but certainly experience is the right word, just kind of gives some real credence to the instincts that we're feeling and gives us the power to carry carry things out. The, the situation that we're specifically talking about, this is someone who's actually, she's a part of our Echoes of Recovery program. And I want to talk just a little bit about that. Our Echoes of Recovery program is, is something that you and I started about a month or six weeks ago, Sherry. And it's for the loved ones of alcoholics. And it's all about connection and communication and support. You and I aren't trained therapists. All we have to offer is our experience and our vulnerability, our willingness to talk about our our story. But what we're finding with the people that are part of the program is that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for a psychotherapist to sit across them and tell them what the textbook says. And they're also not looking for a place where people just go and rehash the awful things that their loved one who's the drinker did. So we're trying to be supportive and be comforting and loving and, you know, kind of positive in a way. Yeah, like I think to the, share what works. I think the fact that you and I are both doing this together, I think in a way, just my my existence, just the fact that my body is sitting in the chair um, and participating in the in the video calls that we do and 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 the other forms of communication, I think that it in some ways just kind of automatically eliminates the just husband bashing yeah. that could happen because yeah. there's there's a husband listening in, which I'm sure to some degree must feel awkward at first for some of the people that are participants in the group. But I think they, you know, I think the fact that I've been through enough to see, oh, you know, this was the disease's fault. A lot of this was, you know, my, I was in the wrong. Um, I think that lowers that, uh, nervousness about having an actual alcoholic in a group of the loved ones of alcoholics. Right. Um, because I, I am, you know, I do see how much damage I did and that, that my disease did. I am willing to admit that. But you now, also had a good incentive or a good, um, oh, I can't think of the word, but a good, you know, a different perspective. You can say, I, that is totally the disease. That is, you know. Oh, yeah. Because when, like, when we hear about what the alcoholics are doing. You're like, oh, yeah, that's totally just the yeah, alcohol, and the, the loved anxiety. Ones, yeah. The loved ones think, gosh, am I married to a monster? Or is my adult son who is an alcoholic? Or is my father who's an alcoholic? Is this person a monster? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I can say, I don't think they are because that's how I acted. And once the alcohol was in a long-term way, you know, a year out of my system... I switched back to not being a complete asshole, so maybe there's right. hope for your loved one too. Yeah. But the the whole goal of this thing is t- to give a place for the stories of 
the secondhand drinkers, the loved ones, the alcoholics to be heard. And I didn't really know what was going to happen when we started. Like I said, six weeks ago, right? Right. I mean, maybe not even six weeks ago. So it's a new program. I just knew that there was a thirst for it because when I would write about it or when you and I would talk on this podcast about it, about the relationship issues related to alcoholism, we get a lot of feedback and a lot of people that are looking for something. And so we wanted to see if we could try to provide that. But then this story, the story that I that we just related, I think this is what Echoes of Recovery is and is going to become. It's going to become a way for people to filter their own instincts. Mm-hmm. Because think about it, especially when you're in a relationship that's with a high-functioning alcoholic where the secret is safe. And few, if any, people know what's going on within the, the walls of that relationship. The loved one has nobody to bounce their instincts off of. I mean, maybe some close, close relatives, because most of the time people that, you know, are married to an alcoholic or in relationship with like one, like usually has issues of codependency because they've experienced trauma or alcoholism or addiction in their upbringing. So it's very normalized. So, you know, it's not shocking they stick around because it's not shocking. But to that point, you had the opportunity to run it by your situation, by some some, uh, relatives, some close relatives. But your mom and sister both had divorced alcoholics. Right. So you got kind of one directional advice. Whereas I think the beauty of bringing multiple people with multiple experiences together through this program, you're going to get a lot of different advice. You're, I mean, there are people in our program who's, who have had relationships that have not worked with alcoholics and they are maybe trying again. Again, we've got people whose parents are alcoholics, whose children are alcoholics. It's not just spouses. And I think being able to run your instincts by a variety of people and having a variety of people who have had a variety of results all say, hey, if that's what's in your heart and that's how you feel, that's not crazy. Uh, sounds like a good plan to me. Let's try to execute it and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. So I'm just really excited about where this thing's going. So if any of our listeners have any interest in our new our new deal, our new program, Echoes of Recovery, you can find more about it at echoesofrecovery.com. E-C-H-O-E-S of recovery.com. And uh, more information there. And if you'd like to enroll, you can do that as well. So we'd love to, we'd love to welcome some new members. It's really, um, we're off to a better start than I ever envisioned. Not not just by like number of participants, but by how the communication is going. I expected there to be some, you know, hesitancy. Yeah, I thought there'd be some ice to break. But we've had we've we've had some people that are just really in a good place and willing to be vulnerable, and they've really broken the ice for us. So that's been very helpful. Mm-hmm. So there's healing there, and we welcome others to join us. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on with you now, Sherry, as it relates to instincts and insecurity. And I, I don't want to end on a on a sour note by any means, but I think it's important that people understand the reason that you have to 
have a recovery program after experiencing alcoholism or an alcoholic relationship is this stuff just just doesn't go away with time. <clears throat> you have to work on it or it's not going to go away. And I think, you know, very typical, when I first got sober, all the attention was on me. Matt's recovery is the only thing that matters because Matt's got to stop drinking and Matt's got to beat the temptations and Matt's got to get some time between him and alcohol and his brain chemistry needs to heal. And the more I learned, the more work I realized needed to be done. And so it's just concentrate, concentrate, concentrate on on my recovery. And then, you know, after about a year of my sobriety, our relationship was getting worse, not better. And we said, well, what's that all about? So then we said, okay, well, we got to recover this relationship. We got to work on the relationship. And so we did the things that we've talked about and I've written about, about resentment and working on trust. And we worked with the kids and we worked on our intimate relationship. And so it went from, it's all about Matt to now it's all about the relationship. And the thing that we skipped was it's all about you, Sherry, your, your recovery. And I think, you know, there's, there's definitely a, a, not a natural sense of urgency around the recovery of the, the loved one. Because the loved one isn't like teetering on the brink of drinking or not drinking. There isn't this kind of destructive component of will she or will she not, you know, I hate this term, right? But fall off the wagon. So so for you, it was much more, um, you know, I, I can put it off or I'll read an article once in a while, but... Um, actually focusing on and concentrating on your recovery wasn't something that during the first few, honestly, first few years of a recovery happened. Do you want to speak to that at all? Um, sure. Yeah, I think that we, you know, tried to work together to repair the relationship. And I don't know if any of our listeners realize, but you like to talk. And so you had a lot to offer from the brain chemistry, the healing, the education that you learned. But it wasn't quite working for me as being the, you know, codependent person in the relationship. It wasn't doing any healing for you. Yeah. So listening to me ramble wasn't helping you. Yeah. um, And then, you know, like your, your amount of input I wasn't quite respecting and valuing your advice and I was a little hesitant and resistant and then it just became I was like rebellious against it and I just felt like there was always something lurking I don't know how to just quite describe it I just felt like there was always some sense of I'm gonna catch her saying the wrong thing if I ask this question this way or you know, I don't, I don't know how to describe that, but I just felt, I just still felt like there was a lot of distance, and um, I also kind of Be- felt because like of I didn't... the was that because of the fact that when I would drink, or just when I had the alcoholic brain going, I was, I was belittling, or I was like, if you made a decision and I didn't like it, I would chop you down at the yeah. knees about it. Yeah, and then like, there's something that. That there's men in your family make this face. 
where they squint their eyes and nose and go, what? In like such a condescending way, I just want to punch you in the face. What are you talking about? What? You did what? Why did you do that? So like those things. I wonder if, like you're saying it so sharply. I wonder if people are going to be able to see the face through listening to it. I'm serious. Like, Well, go look at Matt's face and then imagine his (laughs) eyes and nose scrunched up. So, so it's just like those things be like, just because you don't understand and it's not your brain working and it's mine and my ideas. And then I got very protective about mine and my ideas and my beliefs. And then I was like, kind of in my head going, yeah, you should have listened to me all along. You dumbass. You would have bypassed all this if you had maybe stopped drinking way early in our relationship. So there was like this an arrogance in a way, but really more a lack of respect and a lack of um, acceptance in your answers and your offers and your suggestions. And then when you did just ask a simple question, I felt like it was a criticism because you're like, oh, now you know all this and now you're so smart and you're so enlightened. Mm. You're going to enlighten me on this, you know. So it became this sort of rebellion so you talk. Way. You talked about how I like to talk. Like, let's put this in animal terms. <laughs> animal terms. Let's say you like I. We're the pets of some person. When the person comes home, I'm like the dog that runs up and yeah. wants to lick them and sniff them, and, and oh, you're you're, so happy. you're the you're cat happy. sitting yeah. over in the corner that's like surprised that person made it through another day alive. <laughs> you're like not all that. Yeah. But, well, which is which is fine. But so personality the, types, yes, there is a type, lot right. of differences in our personalities in some ways. So the point is, I like to do all this talking and learning. And you instinctually had through alcoholism and and before me even had learned that a lot of this stuff was better off just pushed down mm-hmm. and ignored because when you would talk about it, it didn't always go so well. Right. And so, so. You're pushing stuff down rather than following your instincts, which is to say, I mean, I guess pushing it down had become your instinct. That was my instinct because a lot of times in years past, if I had tried to approach you about an issue, like it became my problem. You're messed up. What do you think? You know, when I was drinking, yeah, and it wouldn't even necessarily be about alcohol. It could be about just a number of things, like balancing the checkbook or. Like, you know, just... Well, there's so much selfish arrogance in alcoholism. Like, I could never imagine that anything I thought even was wrong. Right. So if you thought one thing and I thought another thing, I wasn't able to process the idea that we should discuss that and maybe maybe your idea is better. It was... Your idea would never be better. Yeah. Like, so then you would do perfect. that. And then on the other hand, you'd be like, well, I let you make all these decisions and you get to do this and you do that and you do... You know, and so then I felt like kind of attacked from the other side, like... You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, because you were basically making me feel like I was so inept, but then I've given you all of these responsibilities and you can't even complete this one thing, you know, or be at the bakery on time to switch our shifts or something if I, like, had a poopy diaper explosion before I had to come in with one of the kids and switch shifts, you know, like, that was, like, the worst being late. Yeah. Um... So it just felt like I just had nowhere to turn with you. And it just, I felt like it just was getting worse and bubbling over. And So you've learned how to push stuff down rather than deal with it. Um, or years into my sobriety, the relationship stuff, it's not getting worse anymore. 
but there's still like we can still go off the deep end into this spiraling awful I don't know argument I guess just ne- yeah. really bad Negative place communication and-, and so you recognize the fact that it's time to work on you mm-hmm. and you've been doing that mm-hmm. not for a terribly long amount of time but you've been dedicating some serious time to it you're you're wor- you're working on stuff. You're not just reading an article once in a while. You're right. you're actually trying to learn new tools and techniques to process the day to day communication and the the feelings that you you take in. Yeah. Did you want? You look like you wanted to say something. About I, that. I was just gonna say. So, you know, like in the past, I would read a couple articles. I would beat myself up for a little bit. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm this, that, and then lick our wounds, and we would be fine. But. Um, and then in the beginning of your sobriety, you were educating yourself and getting new tools and, and I was still keeping the house running and I mean, you were going to work and you were, you know, journaling and reading and, you know, still coaching. So there was still, you were still high functioning in your recovery, but I just didn't feel like I had the time or the energy or I knew that I needed to work so hard. So I think... Timing-wise, um, yeah, I've not been um, doing this for very long, but I definitely feel like educating myself, and I have, it's a positive side of, um, you know, recovery. So just learning about some things that I hadn't even thought about, and how that's playing in, and how I have to, like, take a moment and refocus on the comment that you make. It could be a simple question. But I know you're not gonna wait to have some undermine, undermining, you know, counter offer, or you're not trying to make me feel bad for my choices. You're just asking a question. Yeah. Just being you, and you're a questioner. You like to know what's going on. You yeah. like to be part of, you know, the family. And also, for many years, you were kind of off on your own in your own little drunken world. Yeah. And. uh I made a lot of decisions and did a lot of things with the kids and, you know, I didn't have to answer to you or you didn't give a shit. True. But so, so the work that you're doing, it's, it's having benefits and that's, that's what I want to kind of end on here today. Um, You're learning that the pushing it down and hoping it goes away doesn't work. Right, and I, after conversations, I, 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 we've talked about that endlessly, and I learned it doesn't work. I just didn't have the tools to know how to just say stop. And you've also gotten to a place where you're like, wow, we need to really work on you. Well, your timing is, you know, good. It's good timing. We we need to focus. So, so you're supportive. So earlier in this past week, our oldest daughter, who is about to go off to college, graduating from high school right now. She missed, or she was late for an appointment, a, a phone appointment, a, a video appointment, I should say, I guess. And in addition to that, she had forgotten to get some information to me, which I had asked her for, and that was kind of important. It was about college, some stuff that she was supposed to get to me. And she was not feeling well. She was sick. But both of these things had kind of come to a head, things that she had mistakes she had made and she doesn't make mistakes I mean she's as good a kid as there is but I am under a lot of I don't know if this is normal or not it's probably not 
but I am feeling a ton of stress right now for the fact that we're almost done like shaping her. And I know we'll still have influence on her life, but she's about to go off to college and theoretically, probably she, you know, she won't live here anymore. I mean, she'll come back for the summers for as long as she'll t- she'll do it. We'd love to have her, but yeah, for but she's she's going off on her own is the point. And yeah. so I feel this pressure to to not let any moments go by. Any teachable moment. Don't let any teachable. I don't care if she has a hundred and two degree temperature. We're right. Telling her that. So life lesson. So she made these couple of mistakes that are very out of character for her. And then you know, in my in my mind, to top it off and make it worse. Uh, when I asked her about them, she she made excuses for why they happened, and I said, "Listen, you know the the worst. You know every human makes mistakes. The best thing you can do is own up to them. The worst thing you can do is start making excuses because if it's if you're talking to an employer or just someone who has some kind of influence over your life, and they start hearing excuses, they're gonna think poorly of you and just think think of you as unreliable or or that you can't." own your mistakes. And I said, owning your mistakes is a big, important thing. For you, it's and a so, really big, important it's thing. It's especially important for me, but I think I think it's important for everybody. But you're Well, right. I'm not quite as harsh of a judge on that, like, because I am an excuse maker. But so, here I am. I know she's sick, and I know I should save this for later, but I feel all this stress to not let a teachable moment go by. That's a great way to describe it. And so I have this conversation with her, even though she's sick. And it didn't go particularly well. Not surprising. And you caught wind of it. And it really upset you. But here's the, here's the point. You talked to me about it. And you didn't just talk at me about it, about your opinion. You listened when I said... Sherry, look, I feel all this stress and pressure to get it right with her every moment possible because she's about to be on her own and I don't want to I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to screw up and not not help her in every way I can. And you like you shocked me, Sherry. You you were like, "Okay. You know, I don't agree with you and I still think you're wrong, but I totally understand where you're coming from." I totally understand that emotion you're sharing with me, Matt. This, these are kind of your words. And and that's the kind of thing that in the past would have sent us off into this horrible dark hole. Mm-hmm. Because you would have been very angry with the way I handled that. And kind of unable to see my side of it, I guess. But this time, it was different. It was like, it was magical. Like, I felt like it was Christmas morning. I gotta say, that was one of the hardest things. <laughs> To like, and I know that sounds so stupid, but it was really hard. Like I had to just really like be a good listener and put yourself in, put myself in your shoes and then understand that you don't want her to be an excuse maker. And I don't either. And I know that I was looking at it differently from the mother versus the father. Because she was sick. You're like, I was like, all I want to do is take care of her. I only get her for, I mean, hopefully she'll get to go off into college and they'll have a normal fall, but I only get her for a few more months and, you know, and I want to protect her and, you know, so I, I was like very upset because it just kills me to see her upset. But also, I, I, from what I learned, I realized that she either 
through this called transgenerational messaging or just through like my behavior she doesn't normally make excuses she normally owns up to things but she doesn't really miss anything so she doesn't have a lot of experience doing this where she's had to make she doesn't make enough mistakes to have right so she doesn't have experience in that but but I have been nothing but an excuse maker to her and her brothers for years and years about my behavior or pushing it down or acting like they were wrong that I was upset or making excuses for your poor behavior when you minute. were drinking. Clarify that. You never blamed your being upset on the kids. No. No, I'm That's sorry. That's sounded like, like you were sorry. Saying. I meant like... Like, if I was upset, I, I said, no, no, you're wrong. I'm not upset. Oh, you know? just denied the Denied. The, the but she's Yeah, but she saw all sorts of excuses. And then when I was, then I was thinking about it, when I was growing up, I had lots of excuses come from my, my parents instead of just owning up to making mistakes. Yeah. And, and I also feel like I hate owning up to mistakes. And I get defensive about that. And that had been part of my M.O. for years when we were, you know, before this. Yeah. Like, I very rarely owned up to making a mistake. I would make a million excuses of why I thought my way was doing it the right way. And then I would usually blow off with, well, everybody makes mistakes. And I hardly ever apologized. It was never much of an apologizer for mistakes. Like, you know, minor ones like that. Or like being late. Yeah. And come up with an excuse. Well, the baby had a blowout diaper and everywhere, you know. Like, you would always be like, just build in extra time. You know, but I always had an excuse. So, I kind of felt like I have passed that on to her. So, I was being even more protective. But then I was like, but Matt's trying to teach her this good lesson. Well, the, I need to respect that. Yeah, the fact that you were willing to to have that conversation and recognize both sides. I think what's really cool about this is nobody had to be right or wrong. Your mothering instinct of, you know, let's get off her back while she's sick. Let me take care of her and nurse her back to health. And my instinct of, you know, God, I'm almost out of time with her. I want to get this right. You know, I feel like, I know it's an exaggeration to say for the first time, but for one of the rare times, those two things were able to mutually coexist. Right. And you didn't just take, you didn't just take it and shove it down. You didn't let your insecurities get the best of you. Or I didn't throw it up in your face too. You, as you, you were explaining to me about how you wanted to give one more lesson, I didn't just say something really shitty like it could have been like, well, you know, you could have been doing this for years, but no, you had to go and drink and screw it all up in the beginning and... She, we wouldn't have any to feel like I have these, you know, like that's yeah. something I feel like yeah, I could have sucked. quickly, I feel like that's something I could have quickly said. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't. A couple years ago. Yeah. Yeah, but so the back to, you know, let's, Sorry. no, it's it's great. But to, to round out back to the the instincts and insecurities, the, the more you kind of treat your insecurities the more you pay attention to your recovery and you learn and you you process things and you you take the you know you've got exercises that you're doing you've got you know things that you're filling out tools you're actually proactively and actively participating in your recovery not just reading once in a while um the more that brings your insecurity level down 
And the more you're able to talk to me and not worry that, that I'm going to have some crazy alcoholic reaction, you're able to be in the moment and follow your natural, uh, your healthy instincts mm-hmm. as opposed to your unhealthy insecurities. And I, just, I mean, I just think the topic is fascinating. I think the battle between instincts and insecurities is rages in everyone, but it's particularly ugly in an alcoholic relationship. And I'm really excited for the progress that you're making and for the progress that we're making as a couple. So it's good. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Makes me want to go camping with you again. Well, good. We will be at a few weeks. Because I think, come what may, no matter what, that. pterodactyl gets dragged, I'm going to sharpen that. I think that's what I was just thinking, is I think we should at least sharpen, sharpen the, the hatchet. hatchet. Or maybe go buy a new one altogether. I think it even has like a wobbly head. The sharpened hatchet. We should... I. Just finished the manuscript for the first book. I think I'm going to tie. I don't have, haven't had a title. I think a good book title would be The Sharpened Hatchet. Yeah, because Matt and Sherry's that. Relationship Issues. Yeah. That'll, that'll fly off the shelves yeah. with, a, with a name like that. But anyway. Sounds like it's a. Dying pterodactyls, come and get us. We're a team. Nothing, nothing can stop us now. Well, thank you. Thank you for working on. Your side of the street, as they say, and uh, I'm excited for where this is going. For my wife, Sherry Salis, this is Matt Salis, and we thank you for listening to another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast, and we hope you'll join us again next time.